If you're new with us, uh, we have been going through 2 Corinthians since January the 10th, and today we conclude our series in this uh, wonderfully encouraging uh, epistle. Uh, Just to give you a heads up on where we're going next, uh, next Sunday, uh, Chad Martin, as I said, is going to be preaching, so we'll hear from Chad, and then I want to uh, finish July by looking at three particular psalms, psalms for troubled souls, uh, Psalm 27, 46, and 77. Uh, And then after that, we're going to do a quick six-week series on the church called Be the Church. And uh, the seventh week of that will be our 10-year anniversary as a church. And so we have special guest speaker Ray Ortland coming in on that day uh, to help us celebrate. And then our next book that we're going to be working through is the book of Daniel. That will take us about 10 weeks leading up to Advent, at which time we hope to start the Gospel of Luke. So that's the plan. Uh, But we don't want to presume on any of that. Uh, We know we've got this moment, and so we want to pray, ask for the Lord's help, uh, that we would uh, heed his word uh, uh, as we finish up this wonderful uh, epistle together. Father, thank you for your word today. It is living and active. It's powerful. It changes us. It shows us our Savior. And um, we pray that we would be like the wise man that Jesus talked about that built his house on the rock. And so when the storms came, he was okay. He was solid. And we wouldn't build our lives on sand, on the wisdom of this age, but upon your living and abiding word. And so even now, we pray you come make us receptive. Help me as I uh, deliver your word to your people. Give me clarity of thought, ease of utterance, uh, and uh, come now by your spirit and be our teacher, we pray in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. Well, in addition to uh, living in a rapidly growing area, some say the second fastest growing population in America, 93 people per day moving into the triangle, this is also a very educated area. I must have been told a dozen times before I moved here that uh, this area has the most PhDs per capita of anywhere in America. And in this local church, you can find people with almost any degree you would have an interest in. Uh, It's not uncommon to be out in that foyer and talk to people who have medical degrees, law degrees. We have at least one rocket scientist, educational degrees, tech degrees, and many others. And because of that, it's it's also not uh, uncommon to hear people talking about an upcoming exam that they have to take. And in small group and, and stuff, we, we're praying for those who've got those, those dreaded exams coming up. And if they do well, we celebrate. And if they don't, we uh, do the ministry of comfort. Um, but even if you don't have a bunch of degrees, you know what it's like to take a test. Uh, we have to take tests all, all, in all sorts of ways. Uh, we have to take physical exams, for example, and uh, many of us uh, dread those also. Well, the Apostle Paul is talking here about an exam that is more important than a final exam and more important than a physical exam. It's a spiritual exam. It's a test to see whether or not you're a genuine believer. And it is fine and good to pass other exams in life, but you don't want to fail this exam because only this exam determines your eternal state. And it's fitting that Paul would would leave on this note in this letter because as we looked at last week and we've looked at for some weeks now, he is preparing to visit the church in Corinth, a troubled church, for a third time, and he wants them to put things in order. So here now he adds to what he's already said, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. 
He wants there to be a peaceful meeting when he meets them and a, a productive meeting. And he doesn't want to bring correction and discipline. He wants to come in the meekness and gentleness of Christ. What Paul has aspired for in this whole letter is, is, is very exemplary. He has longed for spiritual victory in Corinth. He has longed for these believers to experience full restoration and full obedience to the gospel. He wants to know that the church is made up of genuine Christians who are filled by the Spirit, who want to build up one another, who want to be generous people contributing to God's work in the world. Those have been some of the aspirations in this letter. And so what are his final words in order to achieve these ends? Let me give you four topics that Paul brings up to finish up this letter. The first is self-examination. Paul here in verses 5, 6, and also really 7 uses the language of passing or failing a test. And he says in verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether or not you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless you indeed fail to meet the test? What Paul basically says here in these verses is that true faith stands up under self-examination. Now, interestingly, Paul has been the one who's been under examination. The church has really scrutinized Paul. They have criticized his appearance, his abilities, his resume. And now Paul turns the tables and says to the Corinthians, you examine yourself. Previously, they sought proof that Christ was speaking through him. And now he says, show proof that Christ is in you. Examine, test. Some translate it as prove. However we translate it, these are imperatives. These are not options. These are orders from the Apostle Paul. Examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Yourselves is also put in the front of the sentence in the original for emphasis. The emphasis is on you and not your neighbor. You and not your other brother and sister. And that's a really good word for us, isn't it? Because it is very easy to pick out faults in others. We're quite good at that. No one even had to teach us that. We're just naturally inclined that way. I mean, you know what's wrong with your spouse. Right? Uh-huh. You know, how, how messy can you be, she says to, to the spouse. You're like an extra kid. Uh, well, you're supposed to be helping me, right? Or, or we know how, it, how easy it is to be critical of our parents. Oh, they're so stuck in the 70s. They're still drinking instant coffee. They, it's a buffet every time they go out to eat. And as one who's coached and, and played sports, I know that it's very easy to be critical of your kids' coaches. That's why many don't even want to be a coach. It's not because of the kids. It's because of the parents of those kids. Even though little Johnny's terrible. And his, his, his favorite thing about baseball practice is throwing the ball in the bucket. Uh, the parent still thinks he's got a shot at the major leagues and can't believe you stuck him out in right field praying that nobody hits a ball to Johnny, right? <laughs> and you know what we're really good at being critical of? Our other drivers. Mm, yes, yes. That's nice Tesla, pal. Does it have a blinker? That'd be great. Well, you don't have to use a turn signal, I guess, if you got one of those. And then if you have turned the news on at any moment in time, you know that uh, programs exist to only attack the other side. There's not a lot of self-examination going on on popular media, right? 
We've been taught to do critical book reviews of other people's books. We're skilled at tearing down arguments. But here's, here's the question. How much time have you spent examining yourself? John Calvin begins the famous institutes this way. Nearly all wisdom we possess consists in two parts. Knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. Examine yourselves. Now we're good at examining ourselves perhaps physically. But the emphasis obviously here is examine yourself spiritually so that you may prove to be in the faith. The testing language is the same uh, vocabulary that's used of testing animals and pastors and testing gold to, to see that the gold is genuine, that the animal is fit, that the pastor is qualified. Examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. It's very, very, very dangerous to go through this life professing to be a Christian, but to never examine yourself. Take note of this. Paul is writing to the church. Not people outside the church, but to the church. John says that there were some that went out from us, but they were not of us. You can have the appearance of a Christian, kind of like the local restaurant establishment just had the study to show that their tuna was not tuna. I was totally a surprise to some, but uh, it was everything but tuna. You, you have the appearance of Christian, but once it's examined, you realize it, the real thing is not there. Now, this doesn't mean perfection. It doesn't mean we examine ourselves, and if, if we are not you know, morally perfect, we're not in the faith. No, this, but it does mean a new love for Jesus, uh, a love for his word, a new direction in life. New, you're making progress in the Christian life. More specifically, Paul gives us really two things to think about to do this self-examination. A doctrinal test and an experiential test. Like, doctrinally, when he says, examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. That little article, the, is very important. Jude says that we are to contend for the faith. That is a body of doctrine. Orthodox beliefs. Some even translate this. Make, examine yourself to see if you are holding to the faith. Right? And th this makes sense because in 2 Corinthians, the big issue has been false teachers who Paul previously said, preach another gospel, they preach another Jesus. They, they talk about a different spirit. So to examine ourselves first, we need to believe in the real Jesus of the Bible. So this has to do with what we believe. But then there's this experiential component when he says, to see that Jesus Christ is in you. So he doesn't give this big long list, it's actually quite simple. He brings up the glorious idea of the indwelling Christ in believers. Because if that's there, everything changes. Paul talks about this in other places, doesn't he? In Galatians 2.20, that Christ lives in me. Colossians 1, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Romans 8 verse 9, he says, Whoever doesn't have the spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. So that's the test. Is the indwelling Christ in you. And, and how do you know? How does, how does Christ make his presence known to us? Well, first of all, I would say that there is an inward consciousness. There is an assurance. He makes his presence felt. He assures us that we belong to God. You see this in places like Galatians 4, where Paul says, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We can cry out to him and he hears us. We know that why? Because the Spirit of Jesus is in us. But secondarily, we also know this because the character of Christ is reproduced in us. 
Jesus' presence in us eventually, at some point, in some measure, has an impact on us. And we begin to bear resemblance to Jesus. As Paul has already said, he comes in the meekness and gentleness of Christ. We begin to take on the, the peace of Christ and his righteousness and his holiness and so on. So genuine believers, he says, then they hold to the faith, real sound doctrine, and they have experienced life. They have the indwelling Christ. Now, this is important, right? But we, we take this test because we know that we will all stand before a divine examiner on the last day. And you do not want to fail that test. So you take this test so that you don't have to dread that test. And if you stand up under this test, then you can look forward to that day. But sadly, Jesus says, some will say on that last day, I did a lot of stuff in your name. And Jesus will say, I never knew you. You failed that last day test. Now, Paul does expect an affirmative answer, I think, when he says, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I think he's writing in a way that he assumes that the majority of them will pass the test. He doesn't think the whole church has has gone off the rails and they're not real believers. But he does tell them to do this type of self-examination. Now, you don't want to take this to a ridiculous extreme. Everything can be taken to a ridiculous extreme. And that ridiculous extreme would, would be kind of a morbid introspection where you're totally obsessed with yourself. Well, that's not the goal of the Christian life, is it? Self-examination that Paul is talking about here is a means to an end. It's not an end in itself. The means to an end. The end is that you may know Christ truly and better and serve him better. McShane famously said, for every one look at yourself, take 10 looks to Christ. That's the way of the Christian life. That's how we're changed. Ten looks to Christ, but occasionally we take the one look at ourselves and examine ourselves to see if we're growing, if we're alive, if, if we're making progress and so on. That's the kind of thing here that Paul is talking about. And so self-examination. Now he includes himself. I think that's important. He, he says in verse 6, uh, I hope that you will find that we have not failed the test. Here, I think Paul may have in mind the idea that if you pass this test and realize, yeah, I'm a genuine Christian, that you actually say that I'm also a genuine apostle. Because he's been under scrutiny, and he's saying, you will find, if you find the real thing, that we haven't failed either. Well, that's the first thing that we see in this text here, self-examination. Make your calling and election sure, Peter would say. This is Paul's version of that. Secondly, ministerial dedication. This is also not a surprise topic in this letter, given the fact that Paul has been defending his ministry throughout the letter, and here we see some really valuable principles for how we care for one another and minister to others in this world. You see Paul here mentioning really three big ideas, I think. One is his commitment to pray for the well-being of the Corinthians. And then you see, secondly, sort of this attitude of Paul saying, It's really not about my self-justification or how I appear to be. I don't even really care about how I'm perceived. I care about your growth. I care about you more than how I'm looked at by others. And that's a really important word, I think. And then finally, it ends with Paul saying, I want to use the authority Jesus has given me to build you up. He's dedicated to pray. He's dedicated to their well-being. He's dedicated to their upbuilding. You see him mention prayer twice, the first time in verse 7, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong. I think here wrong means that you would fail the test, that you would slip back into the previous mentioned sins in chapter 12. 
You remember verses 20 and 21 we looked at last week. He says, when I show up, I'll, I better not see you guys breaking bad and you know, committing the sins that divide the church and practicing sexual immorality. I'm praying that you may not do wrong. And then we get into that idea I mentioned of Paul speaking about his appearance when he says, not that we may appear to have met the test. My goal is not for you, ultimately, to know I was the real deal, but he says that you may do what is right though we may have seemed to fail. You may not even think we're that hot. That's fine. What I care about is you and your growth. It's a great attitude from the Apostle Paul here in this day in which everyone is concerned about their appearance and their reputation, and we play all of these political spin games. Paul says, I don't really care what, what the word is, the, the assessment that you make of me. What I care about is that you, are, you have a living, growing faith. That's a really dedicated minister to, to put himself in the background and put them in the foreground. He says in verse 8, for we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. I think he's basically saying here, don't misunderstand me. We haven't acted wrongly. I'm just saying whatever your final assessment is, it isn't my main concern, your final assessment about me. My concern is you. And so he gets back to that idea in verse 9, for we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. That's just another way of saying, I don't care about your assessment of me, I care about you. Here he's saying, I don't care if your assessment of me is that I'm weak, I'm glad. that's fine with me, as long as you're strong. As long as you're built up in the faith, as long as you have a real commitment to Jesus, you can make whatever assessment about me that you're like. This is, this is a Christ-centered ministry model that Paul is laying out here. It's really not about him how he's perceived, how he's looked upon, that's not the big concern. That should never be our main concern. Our main concern is that, and are they built up in the faith? Are they strong? Are they committed to Jesus? Are they growing? It's an others-oriented focus that the apostle displays here. It's very challenging. And then he says, your restoration is what we pray for. That's his second prayer in this text. Restoration. This Greek word means to put something back that is, is broken, you know, like uh, used of repairing city walls or mending fishing nets or um, resetting dislocated bones. Being dedicated to others in ministry means that we long for them to be restored so that they may flourish, that the broken be made whole, that they experience Christ's grace, that there be unity and love in the fellowship. Your restoration is what we pray for. And Paul's praying for the Corinthians, which is pretty remarkable if you know anything about the Corinthians. Those of you who've been in our study know what kind of problems Paul has endured, and how's he responding here? Your restoration is what we pray for. And then he gives basically the purpose of the letter in verse 10. For this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not tearing you down. He says, I don't, want to, I, don't, I don't want to do Wyatt Earp when I show up. <laughs> right? I want to do the gentleness and meekness of Christ. That's what I like to do. And so he says, the Lord has given me authority. I can enact discipline. But what I really want to do is build you up. Build you up. So put all that together here. Paul longing to see spiritual growth and restoration, praying for those things, being committed to building them up. So let me ask you. Have you given up on certain people? Paul doesn't give up on this church. 
Have you stopped praying for certain people because they're driving you crazy? Paul's praying for people that drove him crazy. Have you taken the ministry of upbuilding seriously? Or to ask it a different way, who are you building up? Ministerial dedication. Thirdly, we see here in this text, communal exhortations. Paul gives five exhortations for the community of faith, and now he shifts to a very affectionate tone. I think Paul wants to end kind of on a positive tone, and what he says kind of summarizes much of the things, many of the things he's already mentioned. He leads with what he often leads with when he gives these kinds of lists, rejoicing. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Paul is, if you're new to the Bible, the apostle of joy. But it's not that he never endured affliction. In fact, this book has shown us many of his afflictions. It is possible to suffer, to endure all kinds of afflictions and rejoice always. Because our rejoicing is not in our circumstances, it's in our Christ. We rejoice in the Lord. Paul said previously in this text, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. That it is possible to both be sorrowful in a moment, but be able to rejoice. Because there is a joy that cannot be touched by our circumstances. It is a joy that we have in Christ. Dane Ortland was shared an illustration of this about Jonathan Edwards, a famous American preacher who was fired from his church. And one guy witnessed Jonathan Edwards' disposition and said, I never saw the least symptoms of displeasure in his countenance the whole week, but he appeared to be like a man of God whose happiness was out of the reach of his enemies, (laughs) whose treasure was not only a future but a present good, overbalancing all imaginable ills of life. I love that. His happiness was out of reach of his enemies. How how can your happiness be out of reach of your enemies? It's in Christ. It's safe in Christ. It's out of reach. And so that's Paul. Finally, brothers, rejoice. And this is his goal for other people, isn't it? We looked at previously in this book, we work with you for your joy. We want to see others rejoice. And he's expressing that in this exhortation. Finally, rejoice. Secondly, he says, aim for restoration. This is the the verb form of the noun in verse 9 for restoration. Same word, it's this idea of being put back together. And here I think he means in the context of relationships. Put the broken relationships back together. Aim for restoration. When there's conflict, what's our goal? Restoration. We aim for restoration. That is, we have to put away bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness and pride and positively pursue reconciliation, and restoration. Aim for restoration. Thirdly, comfort one another. This is the 18th and final time Paul has used this word parakaleo in 2 Corinthians. It's a book filled with comfort for afflicted saints. And he says here, comfort one another, which implies that Paul assumes there is pain in the fellowship. He assumes there is affliction in the fellowship, and we can assume the same. And we take on the disposition and the delight of comforting our brothers and sisters who we know are dealing with difficult things in their lives. Then he says, agree with one another. Now, this doesn't mean we forget the truth so that we can all be happy and get along. Paul, of course, had sharp disagreements with people. 
But this means, I think, to have an impulse toward harmony, toward love, to, to step to each other in peace and love, that there be no divisions in the body, Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 1, that we agree with one another. That's the same language used in Philippians 2. So let there be no division. Agree in the Lord. And if we do these things, I think the result is the, the final exhortation. We live in peace. This, this flows from being in agreement. This flows from comforting each other, aiming for restoration. We live in peace. And the church then becomes something countercultural in this society that we live. We, we become a city on a hill, as it were. Reflecting here Jesus' own words to be at peace with each other. Be eager, Paul says in Ephesians 4, to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Put to death sins that divide and pursue peace. Jesus gave us that great word, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Of all the things that Jesus said that would make us one who looked like our God, it's peacemaking. Because God is the peacemaker, isn't he? He has sent Jesus to reconcile us to him and to one another. So we live in peace. Now, this it has, a, has a word of assurance with it when it says at the end of it, and the God of love and peace will be with you. And I don't think this is like a reward if we do these things, and, but more of an encouragement to be aware of the fact that God is with us as we do these exhortations. And the God of peace will be with us. He will bring blessing and joy, and he brings empowerment to carry out these exhortations. It's like Paul's thinking about, man, what do, what do the Corinthian church need? They, need? they need the God of love and peace. <laughs> if anybody needs the God of love and peace, it's these crazy, cantankerous uh, Corinthians. This is the only time God of love and peace is used in the New Testament. In fact, the phrase God of love doesn't appear anywhere else. Um, Paul fuses these ideas together. In other words, it's not a little cliche. Paul is being very deliberate in saying, what is it that is needed in a divisive context? where there's a lot of contention, a lot of strife, the God of love and peace. Now see, friends, from, from these verses, how community-focused the Christian life is. You can't live these out in a desert by yourself. It's, this only happens in the context of relationships. And we also should see that the, how, how the, the church is not consumers. These are, things, these are responsibilities to carry out that we are to act upon. He gives some, some greetings as he does elsewhere, greet one another with a holy kiss, which makes some of us a bit nervous. Or as uh, Philip's paraphrases it, a hearty handshake all around. Hearty handshake. Let there be warmth in the fellowship. Don't, don't keep each other at arm's length. But, but let, let love be expressed in a tangible way. The, the, the church is, is earthy. It's it's, it's a holy fist bump or a hug or if you're comfortable and it's actually holy, a holy kiss, all right? <laughs> and all the saints then, he says, greet you. <laughs> I'll give you a holy kiss later, Ed. Don't worry, man. <laughs> Only on the head, though. That's where I kiss Keeler on top of his head. That's what the bald guys do. You know, it's kind of like a fraternity, I think. Um, I'm getting myself in trouble. All the saints greet you. <laughs> where was I? Uh, I don't even have any notes on that verse. Yeah, I just went on rambling. Uh, here, here I think Paul goes from 
the local context to the global context now, which is another wonderful reality. So while we have a local church and we know people and we can greet each other with a holy kiss, we also are part of something that's global and vast. It's really a beautiful thing here that Paul lays out. Well, there are three topics. The final one is a Trinitarian blessing, this benediction. Now, we've been saying this benediction as a church for over a year now. Surely you have it memorized by now. (laughs) And it's very significant because, I think, again, because of its Trinitarian nature. And we see elsewhere in the New Testament, Father, Son, Spirit mentioned in one or two verses together. But here it's a blessing. It's this Trinitarian benediction. And think about it. What Paul leaves ringing in the ears of the Corinthians is this word of blessing. I mean, he said some strong things to the Corinthians. But his longing is that they may be blessed by their triune God. He wants them to have a deeper relationship with their God. And so he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is where we begin the Christian life. If you're not a Christian, we can't earn it. We just receive it. We receive his grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's already taught us elsewhere in chapter 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. For though he was rich, for our sake became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. Paul loves to bless people with the grace of Jesus. 1 Thessalonians, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Galatians, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Corinthians, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Romans, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Philemon, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. How wonderful. The grace of the Lord Jesus. That is, church, we have received undeserved, eternal favor from Jesus, the friend of sinners who has come to our rescue. He is overwhelmingly generous to us. He is astonishingly dedicated to us. He is more committed to us than we are to Him. That's His grace. May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. May the love of God, He adds, how deep the Father's love for us. His love is shown in so many ways in creation, in supplying all of our daily needs, but in redemption, His love was put on display vividly at the cross. For while we were yet sinners, He sent Christ to die for us. 1 John, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. For God so loves the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Our assurance is rooted in the love of God. Paul says, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, church, be with you. May the love of God be with you. To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. And then he adds, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the koinonia, the participation of the Holy Spirit. You don't live the Christian life on your own. You live by the Spirit. This is the new covenant blessing. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. 
May you know the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the union of the Spirit, the participation of the Spirit, the presence of the Spirit. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, all of them, even the crazy ones, even the weird ones, even the wild ones. Paul blesses all of them in Corinth. He blesses the poor ones. He blesses the rich ones. He blesses the strong ones. He blesses the weak ones. In fact, we should say in light of the message of this book, it's especially for the weak. This blessing is especially for the poor. All Christians receive this divine embrace. And that is a staggering thought, man. Then you read this letter and think about these Corinthians. How do you respond to the Corinthians? What does he leave in their ears before he visits them for a third time? this blessing. Think about that. He blesses them with the richest of blessings. These people who have revolted against him, slandered him, belittled him, who didn't defend him publicly, who went after false teachers, who rebuked his authority, who flaunted their sins. And he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That's your new response to your enemies. That's your new response to the person that pulls out in front of you. That's your new response to the wayward child. That's your new response to those who are slandering and belittling you. That's your response. How do we respond to those like these Corinthians? Trinitarian benediction. That's what that person needs. That's, they need a lot of them, and I'm going to give them some. Jesus, Paul here is, is following in the footsteps of Jesus himself who was slandered, mocked, beaten, spit upon, betrayed. He came into his own, and his own did not receive him. And he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. What do struggling saints need? What do we need this morning? We need the triune God to come and bless us. We need his blessing. We need his favor. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us. All of you. And those in the child care. Especially those in the, in the child care, right? That's Paul's final words. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. A few questions about that. We would love to talk to you. You hold into the gospel. You experience Jesus' presence. Be dedicated to the spiritual well-being of other people. Care less about what people may think about you. Care about their well-being. Pursue love and peace in the fellowship and give glory to your triune God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the grace that we have received, the mercy that has been bestowed upon us, for the salvation we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we prepare our hearts to take the bread and the cup, we pray you would revive your people, that we may rejoice in you genuinely and gladly. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.